Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Have a great day. Thank you, Ed. My name is Barney, and I'm an alcoholic. And it's uh, very nice to be able to come back here to your meeting. I guess it's been uh, five years or so since I was here the last time. And uh, a lot of people have come and a lot of people have gone in that time, as is always the way at Alcoholics Anonymous. But I am uh, glad to see those of you who are here because uh, you're helping me to participate in my sobriety tonight and I am uh, trying to participate in yours. And that's really what Alcoholics Anonymous is all about. That's what we do here. Uh, we eat a lot of cake and drink a lot of coffee, but we <laughs> try to participate in one another's lives. I um, am always glad to be in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's particularly nice to to come and help celebrate an anniversary in AA. We tend to, to mark off uh, important occasions, as we did tonight, with all these birthdays that we celebrated. And uh, we, we mark off these 365-day increments as if they were somehow more significant than any other day, and they really are not, uh, because what happens is that you get 365 days, and then and then you get 366 days, and then you get 367 days, and, and I, I kind of began to understand the one day at a time uh, issue here, finally, uh, the night before my fifth birthday in Alcoholics Anonymous, I was sitting at home uh, that night, and uh, and just thinking about the fact that I was going to be five years at midnight, and 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 feeling very depressed, and thinking, gee, I I thought when you got five years, first of all, you were supposed to be real smart, and uh, you're supposed to really understand everything, and uh, and uh, feel real serene and spiritual and everything, and I didn't feel any of those things. I felt, as a matter of fact, terribly lonely, and uh, kind of depressed. My wife. Uh, a girl in Alcoholics Anonymous uh, had gone to Europe at the last minute on a little junket uh, with a bunch of alcoholic women uh, who were going to a conference in Paris, and she happened to hook into a uh, a ticket uh, pretty cheap because this woman who had planned to go all of a sudden at the last minute could not go, so she sold Carol her ticket uh, for a very good price, and so Carol grabbed it and went over. So she was in Paris, and she was uh, having a lot of fun. I knew that, you know. <laughs> It turns out, and I found out when she got back, that she had flown from uh, New York to Paris uh, with this group of women, and, and she happened to be sitting next to one uh, who said that she was a member of Al-Anon, and, uh, and they had had a real nice talk all the way over about, uh, uh, about uh, Al-Anon and AA and, and uh, the relationship between the two, and, and uh, Carol had been married to this goofy alcoholic now for... Uh, five years. Well, we no. At that time, we were married about three and a half years, and uh, so she asked this woman a lot of questions because the woman was kind of older, and she figured she knew a lot of the answers, and she did. It turned out, uh, and uh, they um, they had just this really nice talk, and this nice lady flew all the way to Paris together and got off the plane, and and when they were at the airport in Paris, uh, two of the women that had been in the group ran up to Carol, my wife, and said, "What was that like?" And Carol said, what was what like? And they said, flying the Atlantic with Lois Wilson. 
Carol never knew. And what's even more interesting, Lois Wilson never told her. She was not particularly impressed with herself. She was just a member of Al-Anon. She introduced herself as Lois and a member of Al-Anon. And, uh, and they just talked. So uh, she was having a good time. And my sponsor uh, that night before my fifth birthday was uh, out of town somewhere. Uh, and I knew he was probably having a good time. I sponsored a few people at that time in Alcoholics Anonymous, and none of them had called me. And I sat there thinking, gee, here I am five years sober and nobody cares. And, uh, and I, I thought, God, I, you know, this five year, this, it's as if I had a sense, I guess, when you hit five years, that it's been as if I'd been some kind of a race. And, and I was going to somehow run through the tape at five years, and, and that would be, and everybody would go like that, and the, and the race would be finished. Well, of course, the race is not finished, because the trouble is, I'm a great 60-yard dash man anyway, but everybody else is running the marathon. And, and so uh, five years and one day, and five years and two days, and five years, and on and on it went. And at six and a half years, or about, well, about six years of sobriety, not too long after that, I went through the greatest crisis and crunch time in my sobriety. And I went through a horrible period of uh, readjustment. Uh, I have come since to understand that it was, a, it was a, the beginning of the process of surrender. Uh, because um, I had surrendered my right to drink when I got here. And, uh, and for six years I didn't drink. And for six years, I went to meetings. And for six years, I carried the message. And for six years, I ground my teeth. And I, and I hated the Alcoholics Anonymous and a lot of the time. And I hated the people who were successful and happy and peaceful and joyous and free. And I couldn't get any of those things. And it was uh, finally at, at six years that I, I, I went through a, a crisis in my life that was, uh, was a horribly depressing period. I was unemployed. I, was, uh, I ran out of money again. Uh, I, I went broke sober. You know, I came into AA broke. And, uh, and I, you know, there's nothing wrong with going broke when you're drinking. But Jesus, when you do it sober, <laughs> just... Somehow it just doesn't seem fair, you know. <laughs> and uh, it was just, it was a horrible period. This woman that I had married uh, uh, was going to divorce me because, uh, because I was such a failure and I was such a jerk. And, uh, and I, I just couldn't seem to get it together. And I, we were in the process, she and I, at that time of trying to raise eight children, six of which were mine and two of which were hers. And, and, uh, and I just didn't feel like that was all going well. <laughs> because unlike other people's children, when mine hit their teens, they grew fangs. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do with them. And I had a hell of a time. And I, I just, it was really difficult to get through that process. And uh, I'll tell you about that. But, but let me tell you first about 
the process that got me to Alcoholics Anonymous, because I spent 35 years not being an AA. I spent 35 years out there trying to survive in, a, in an unfriendly world that I did not understand. A world full of beings, aliens if you will, <laughs> who did not understand me. I heard a guy finally in AA describe the feeling that I had most of my life about not belonging even on the planet, for God's sake. When he said one time, he said, I, I um, expect a spaceship to land any day now right out here on the boulevard, and three guys are going to get out who look just like me. And they're going to say, come on, Bill, we're going home now. And I knew what he was talking about. I said, that's the feeling, baby. That's the thing. And uh, I, don't, I hardly ever get that feeling anymore, particularly in AA meetings. But I get it for maybe about five minutes when I walk into a strange meeting. But all I have to do is shake three or four hands of people that I don't know. And, and all of a sudden that begins to dissipate and it begins to go away. If you're new and you're having difficulty because they all know one another and, and, and they all kind of have a click going and you don't know them and they don't like you, <laughs> shake the hands of five people you have never met and tell them your name and tell them that you're an alcoholic and that feeling will begin to dissipate. It will not go away entirely. It will begin to dissipate. I guarantee you. In any meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. So it became a rule for me when I was new. My sponsor laid that one on me. said, go shake hands with five people you don't know. And I didn't understand that. Because, I don't know, I just, I'm not inclined to do that. It is not my feeling that I want to go shake hands with five people I don't know. I'm not interested in doing that. If they want to know me, let them come over and talk to me. <laughs> Meanwhile, I will enjoy my isolation and loneliness. <laughs> but I can remember feeling that sense of not belonging and not fitting in and not, not being part of as a child. I was raised on the south side of Chicago in a uh, Roman Catholic neighborhood. And uh, it was an Irish neighborhood. And uh, uh, Monsignor McGuire, I remember, talked uh, a lot every Sunday about the pagans, and I never really understood who they were, but um, somehow they were in a lot of trouble and we needed to help them. And, and I just felt puzzled about it all. I'd look around at the statues and the stained glass windows and the, and the you know, people praying with the beads and everything. And, the, and, and I was taught in school by these wonderful Dominican nuns who did the best they could to teach me some rules of living, to try to teach me some of the standards, some of the principles to live by, so that never occurred to me at the time why they were doing it. They were doing it so I would feel better. They were doing it so that I could live a good life and be comfortable and be happy. I didn't know that. Uh, I just knew that I, I couldn't adjust to them, and I couldn't adjust to their rules, and I couldn't adjust to their standards of living because at the age of seven or eight, I recognized something about myself that I couldn't have even described to you at that age, but I now can tell you that I felt like a moral leper. I felt out of place. I felt like a sinner. I felt like a bad person. I knew that the world was somehow divided into the good people and the bad people, and I knew which side I was on very early on. Now, the trick is not to let anybody know that. The trick is to, <laughs> the trick is to make them think you're okay so that they'll give you good grades and you get promoted and you move on in life and things go well for you. The trick is just to get them off your ass is the trick. 
And I spent a lot of years doing that. Just getting them off my ass. Just, ah, just, I'll do better next time. Give me a break, you know. Just. <clears throat> but I know that I'm a moral leper. A moral leper, incidentally, is one who not only sins a lot, but one who enjoys it thoroughly. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the, I, I never had any, I never had any, uh, any feeling of remorse or, or much feeling of guilt. The only time I was remorseful is if I got caught, you know. Oh, I'm sorry. I won't do that again. But, uh, I just, uh, I, I don't know what the hell it is in me that, that wants to do the wrong thing all the time. I just, I just am, I'm compelled to do things that are self-destructive and that are, uh, that are fun. <laughs> And uh, I was just propelled into this into this world in a, in a sense of you know I got to have a lot of fun in a hurry. I don't know why I was always in a hurry to do it. Have a lot of fun right now, and uh, later on I'll straighten out, or you know. <laughs> and I never understood anything. I never understood the rules of living, or how to get along with people, or how to do well. I just was uncomfortable and not, I just never felt like I was, I gave, I don't know, it was just, I just felt goofy most of the time as a youngster. And I grew up in, and I went to Mount Carmel High School in Chicago with the Carmelite priests. And again, they did the best that they could to teach me the rules and to give me some standards to live by and to teach me how to be a, a fine, young, upstanding human being. And I knew that I couldn't fit their rules either. And I knew something was wrong with me. And I was different and I was strange. And you understand, I'm not even drinking yet. I'm just, <laughs> just real neurotic. Just, something's wrong. I don't know what the hell it is. And I can't even put labels on things. Because psychiatry was not real big in my neighborhood when I grew up. So I don't know that I'm feeling fear and anxiety and feeling, you know, inadequate. And I don't know that I'm having anxiety attacks. I didn't know what an anxiety attack was. I was having them all the time. I didn't know that. And just nervous and edgy and uncomfortable. What's the matter? And trying, the problem is trying to look okay. The problem is trying to look normal. When you just feel crazy, just feel weird and strange. When you want to run and you've got to stand your ground and look like you're one of them. It's really hard. And uh, I did a lot of that. I got good grades in school because I knew that if I did that, that I could somehow be successful. And, and see, somewhere along the line, I decided I wanted to be rich and famous. I don't know when the hell had to happen, but I, that's what I wanted. And I somehow came to the conclusion, I guess, without ever writing it down, that the way that you know that you're successful is if you got a lot of stuff. I never knew when I decided that, but apparently I did, because I was frantically trying to accumulate stuff. And it, but if you get a lot of stuff, you know you're okay. And they know you're okay, because you got all this stuff. Cars and houses and clothes and really wonderful things. TVs and stereos. And, <laughs> and after you get a lot of stuff and, and, and the other people around you get a lot of stuff, then you got to get more expensive stuff than their stuff. <laughs> you have to continually prove that you're okay. By getting stuff. I, uh, coming out of high school, was lucky enough to go to the University of Notre Dame. 
I had the Holy Cross Fathers try to teach me a set of rules and standards to live by so that I could be a happy human being. And I was just miserable all the time. Why? Because I was surrounded by people at Notre Dame that had a lot of stuff. And I knew I was different from them, and they, had, they were better than I was or thought they were, and I was just angry all the time, and it just wasn't fair that I had to grow up poor, and goddammit, it's never going to be this way again, and I'll get some stuff and then I'll show them. <laughs> and I'm still not drinking. <laughs> I'm just feeling frightened and angry and frustrated and different, and I don't know what the hell's the matter. And I know that I'm more sensitive than everybody else. It's awful when you know you're more sensitive than everybody. That you just feel things more deeply than they do. You just experience things at a different level. It's just more intense, that's all. There's plenty of people walking around with neurotic emotions, but I'm intense about it. But the trick is to look okay so they don't know. So that when you wake up in the morning and you just feel crazy and frightened and you know what the hell's the matter? And you, and you finally get the shower and you get the clothes on and you get the car and you're trying to look like an adult and you go to work. And you walk in and the boss comes by and says, hey, Barney, how you doing? I say, well, uh, I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, really? What are you afraid of? I don't know. I just woke up that way this morning. I said. I'm afraid of you. I'm afraid of my wife. I'm afraid of my neighbors. I'm afraid of looking bad. I'm afraid somebody's going to find out. Find out what? I don't know. <laughs> or you walk into the office and you sit down with all of the other workers, the bright, articulate people that surrounded me in my 20s, and, and you're sitting there and you're, and you're trying to, trying to, just trying to get along, and, and they say, how you doing? What are you supposed to do? Tell them the truth? Say, well, I have this deep-seated sense of inadequacy. I don't think I'm as good as you people, and I... I don't know what the hell's the matter with me, and I... I don't even want to be here, and I hate you all, and I just... I hate this goddamn job, and I'm... The boss has got me under pressure all the time, and I feel anxiety-ridden, and somebody's going to catch on, and they're going to fire my ass, and I'm not going to get any stuff! How are you? Well, the answer to those questions out there is, I'm just fine, thank you. I'm doing well, I'm at the top of my game. I've never been better, really. I fell by accident into a, a business that allowed me to uh, be very successful for a while and to get a lot of stuff. Uh, I became a uh, radio broadcaster and then a television broadcaster. And uh, when I was 26 years old, I was the anchorman for a television station in Detroit that was owned by ABC. And the ratings were good. And we were very successful. This other guy and I that were anchoring the news there. And uh, he was 27, I was 26. Can't believe it today when I think about it. But we were so successful and things went well. And they were flying the two of us into New York. 
and and they were putting us up at the Leonard Goldenson Suite at the New York Hilton, and champagne and flowers and show tickets and anything we wanted, and they would pick us up with limousines and take us across the street or down the street to the ABC Tower, and we'd go high in the tower and, and sit in an auditorium with the suits. We used to call them the suits, all the Madison Avenue guys, the slick guys, the sharp guys, the New Yorkers, and the guys that really knew what was happening in show business, and we lectured them. We told them how we got such good ratings in Detroit. We told them why we were doing so well, how we became so successful. We had no idea. <laughs> but we knew how to look good and sound good. And, and uh, man, we were just, we were just, I'll tell you, we were the slickest thing I had ever seen. And, uh, I'd gotten married. I'd gotten married very young and married a very nice girl. And, and I, uh, I bought a beautiful home in Detroit and I had automobiles and, and had lots of clothes for her and for me and for the children. We had these six children and, and uh, life was wonderful and I was extremely successful. And I mean, it couldn't have been better. Except for the fact that I'm frightened and feel inadequate and I don't know what the hell's the matter. And I'm, I'm, I'm still that little wired, crazy little Irish kid from the south side of Chicago wondering what the hell it's all about. And I've, and I've got this crazy life going of, of uh, trying to look good and trying to be successful and trying to look okay and feeling so goddamn inadequate and feeling out of place and feeling wrong and not knowing what's wrong, not knowing how to be a husband, not knowing how to be a father, not knowing how to be anything. Because nobody ever gave me the rules, I felt. But the others seemed to get the rules, and I didn't have the rules. I didn't know how to do it. And I, I just felt out of place. And uh, somewhere in my middle 20s, I don't remember when, 23, 24, 25, I don't know. I made the magic discovery that sooner or later every alcoholic must make. And I, I, nobody ever wrote it down or put a plaque on the wall or anything. But I discovered something. And the discovery is so simple, so simple that I never would have really given it much credence until I finally had been in AA for a while. And I sat and I thought a lot about it. And the discovery was this. Whenever I drink, I feel better. <laughs> That's the damnedest thing. <clears throat> If I feel bad and I drink, I feel better. If I feel good and I drink, I feel better. No matter what's going on in my life, no matter how much anxiety or fear or frustration I'm feeling, no matter how sensitive I am, if I drink, I feel better and I can deal with it. I can handle life on its terms because I'm in charge now. It is the magic elixir. And it was wonderful. And I have a tendency to overshoot the mark with it. <laughs> and I never knew why. If somebody had said, why do you drink? I suppose my answer, an honest answer, would have been, because it makes me feel better. But, but if they had said, why do you drink so much? And sometimes people did. Why do you do this? Why do you drink so much? I don't know. I just do. It is instinctive. <laughs> I don't know I got a physical allergy. I don't know that I got a 
the chemistry of my body is different. I don't know that I have a mental obsession about it. I don't know any of those things. I just know when I drink, I feel better, and I have a tendency to overshoot the mark. And I drink, and I get very drunk, and I have a tendency to forget where I am, and to forget who I'm with, and to forget where I left my car, and to forget where I'm going or where I've been. I move around a lot when I drink. I don't remember doing it. I don't know why I did it. I spend a lot of money when I drink. I get people pissed off bad when I drink. <laughs> and I don't mean to. It just happens. Bizarre, bizarre is the way people described it. And I never meant it that way. It was just, have a few drinks. Gonna feel better now, baby. I, um... Uh, I drank very heavily for uh, about ten years, I guess. And I got into a lot of trouble. And I, and I tried during those ten years to, to shape up. Lots of times. Because I was married to this woman who insisted that I shape up. <laughs> and I had bosses who thought that I should shape up. Because I tended to miss work. And if you're an anchorman, they notice. <laughs> Well, we have this empty chair tonight. I've... It's embarrassing, you know, you call the boss from, uh, you know, Kingston, Jamaica. And, uh... Jamaica? What are you doing in Jamaica? I don't know. I was sitting in this bar in Detroit a couple days ago, and, uh, well, it's a long story. I, I don't know how to explain it. Well, you're a drunk. You're a drunk. Don't you understand that? you got to stop drinking. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so, I, from time to time, I would. From time to time, I would shape up. From time to time, I would go on the wagon. And I'd stay sober for three days and four days and five days, and I'd go home on time, and I'd take out the garbage and cut the grass and be a good guy. <laughs> and be attentive, you know. Show up for work on time. Work hard, work hard, work hard. Got to make up. Got to make up for all the bad stuff. <laughs> always coming from behind. Always having to make up for something. Shape up. Clean up your act. Apologize. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. You didn't do anything. I'm sorry anyway. <laughs> and after about a week of uh, sobriety... frustration level begins to rise, my anger begins to rise, my anxiety level goes up to the point where I feel like I'm going to explode. I could barely stand life because I have all these responsibilities and I have all these children and I have these bills coming in and I have this goddamn pressure job and I have so much going on in my life and I'm not drinking and I'm trying to be good and I'm trying to straighten it out, but Jesus, it's awful. It's life on, on a small screen, and it's black and white, and it's boring. And when I drink, baby, it's stereophonic sound and cinemascope. <laughs> and it's not boring anymore. 
after about a week or seven or eight or nine days or whatever the hell it is, I just know I've been good long enough. You ever know? You know when you've been good long enough. You don't need one more person walking up to you and telling you, oh, you look so good. It's so nice. The puffiness has gone out of your face. Your eyes are not so red. It's just so wonderful. You want to look at the people like that and just say, yeah, well, why don't you say that to me one more time and I'll rip out your jugular vein. <laughs> and so just, just because, because I can't take the pressure anymore and because it's just more than I can bear, I just go out to have a couple of lousy drinks just to take the edges off. Just to ease off a little bit, I go have a couple of lousy drinks. Big deal. And I have a tendency to overshoot the mark. <laughs> and I lose my car, and I travel, and I spend money, and I do all these bizarre things, and I don't mean to. But I do know this. <laughs> when I drink, I feel better. If I stay sober too long, I get crazy. That does not sound like a drinking problem to me. Sounds more like a sobriety problem. <laughs> and I don't know where the hell you're supposed to take that. I mean, I, you know, run down to a meeting of Sobrieties Anonymous or something. I don't know. I don't know what to do. Because well-meeting people who care about me suggest to me that I stop drinking, and yet drinking is the only time I feel okay. And finally, my wife divorces me. And, uh, and I looked at her and said, well, I don't understand this. I don't understand why you're leaving me. I, I've done the best I could over the years. I've been successful. I've, I've tried to make it for you. And, and, uh, and she said, well, it's because you're an alcoholic. And I know that's not true. I know that I, I work and I vote. And I've made big money. And I've been a successful person. I couldn't be an alcoholic. When I drink, I feel better. She doesn't understand that. If I stay sober too long, I get crazy. And she doesn't understand that. Why? Because she's one of those really strange creatures. <laughs> they are called social drinkers. I do not understand social drinkers. They are very weird. You give a social drinker a drink, and then you go around and give everybody else a drink, and you have a few in between for yourself, and you get back to the social drinker, and you say, come on, have another drink. He will look at you and say, oh, I don't think I'd better. I'm beginning to feel it. <laughs> and you say, yeah, right, now, yeah. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I better not. I have to go to work in the morning. <laughs> or, I'm driving, thank you. Jesus. So am I. Who cares?
much to my surprise, that social drinkers do not like the feeling I'm after. <laughs> Strange. But my wife said, now I've got to go. And I said, okay, but I'm going to demand custody of the six children. And she said, you got them. And she left. <laughs>
little upscale AA. It's just be a bunch of guys. It'll be fine. He said, be a couple of actors there. You'll recognize and you'll, you'll be all right. I said, oh, really? Actors? Yeah, yeah that's okay. So we went to the meeting, and there were, sure enough, a couple of actors. You know, oh, look at who's there. <laughs> and uh, they got me this, uh, this book. This guy came up, and he said, uh, usually we charge for this, but I'm going to give it to you. And I said, well, I don't really have time to read. I've got a hell of a job, and I'm under a lot of pressure, and I don't need your literature. I just need to, you know, stay sober for a little while. I just got to get some bills paid. I just have to get my life reorganized. I just need to get my head cleared up a little bit. I'm not really alcoholic. And uh, we went to meetings and we went to meetings and we went to meetings and we went to meetings that I didn't like. The meetings, I, I didn't like the book. I glanced through it, kind of flipped through it, a lot of religious stuff in there I wasn't interested in. And uh, a lot of talk about God and spirituality and all that stuff. And... Uh, Besides, if you're not going to be here long, who cares, right? It's just... And uh, so we go to the meetings, and it's test. The meetings were about as boring as anything I'd ever seen. And when we go to the meetings, and first of all, you know, they always have the guy leading who's always smiling and happy to be there somehow, for reasons that are beyond me. And because uh, he's, you know, what the hell? He's in some church basement somewhere, you know, on a Saturday night when you could be having fun. And. Uh, and they always think somebody gets up and read. And I don't understand. They read the same crap out of this book at every meeting. <laughs> like they can't remember it, for Christ's sake. <laughs> Chapter 5, How It Works. <laughs> and then some of the other traditions. I don't understand that. I don't know what the... T- I figured the traditions... I finally figured out the traditions are what they use to quiet the crowd down after the coffee break. Is the only thing I can figure out. <laughs> And then uh, they all get up and tell these horror stories. And, um, you know, that, yes, I drank day and night for 27 years and very nearly died on those streets. I was, I was in Skid Row and they wouldn't take my blood anymore. It was no longer up to their standards. I was morally, physically, and spiritually bankrupt. And I was about to die, and then I walked through that door, and I put the plug in the jug, and I haven't had a drink now in 35 years, and I've become a multimillionaire, and I've worked these 12 golden steps, and several families have returned to me. Uh, found God here, and it's just a wonderful way of life. I have several million dollars right in my pocket. And I would sit and listen and listen and listen to this stuff, and finally one night at a coffee shop, I said to this guy, who had become my sponsor, I asked him to be my sponsor, because it seemed like everybody has sponsors, so I got the sponsor. And sitting there, I'm saying, look, I, I understand now why I'm not alcoholic. If these people are alcoholic, I understand the difference. He said, really, what's that? I said, well, apparently, when these people stop drinking, they feel better. 
I heard him say it. And I don't. I'm uncomfortable and I'm nervous and I'm edgy. And I hate AA and I'm not spiritual and I don't believe in God. And I don't want to hear any more of this crap. And he'd say, oh, well. Probably you need to be more involved. I said, like what? He said, well, like mop floors on Tuesday night. Mop floors? Yeah. Do you know who I am? Mop floors? Truth is, I don't know how to mop a floor. But they taught me. Actually, I got pretty good at it. I was mopping the left side of the hall at the Ohio Street meeting every Tuesday night for a long several months. And, uh, and I always mop mine faster than the guy on the right side. I won that race every week. Of course, I never told him it was a race, but you got to keep an edge. <laughs> and to this day, I walk in there, and that floor is not clean enough. And I know they're not sincere like we were in those days. But I, I mopped floors, and then I became a coffee maker on Saturday night, and then I became a greeter on Thursday night. Why? Because I thought it was a good idea? No. Because this guy said, do it! And it'll make you feel better. And I could not put that together. I couldn't understand why all this action in AA was going to make me feel better. What I needed was some money. What I needed... Was, was I needed a woman. That would make me feel better. And I saw this redhead in the meetings. Gorgeous, tall, redhead, great legs, and I'm chasing her all over the meeting. Trying to just have some coffee or something, you know. And, and she'd say, uh, she had three years sobriety, and she'd say, uh, I don't date newcomers. And I'd say, well, I'm new now, but I'll be old later, so just... A little coffee, you know. <laughs> One night she looked at me and she said, How many children do you have? And I said, Well, I have six, but they're very small. You'd hardly notice them. Just... <laughs> well, we got married when I was a year and a half sober. And we, we began this trudging the road of happy destiny. And it, the only trouble with two alcoholics being in the same house is that there's a serious question on any given day as to who's in charge. You know. And I'm reasonably sure when it's going badly that she's not working her steps. And she calls me the newcomer. You know, it just goes on and on and on. But we put these kids together and, uh, and uh, when I was seven months sober, I heard a man speak and I identified with him. Now, I didn't mean to. It just happened. And I didn't identify with this guy's drinking pattern. I'd been listening for months to find somebody who drank exactly like I did, how much I drank, where I drank, somebody who was a television newscaster. You know, didn't hear any. But I heard this guy that night, and what I identified with was how he felt. Because for the first time in my life, I heard somebody talking about fear in a way that I understood it. I heard somebody talking about a sense of inadequacy that made sense to me because I was like that. I heard somebody who described sensitivity finally said, I am more sensitive than they, all the others, and they just don't understand. 
And he said, the problem I've had all my life is that they have to treat me special so I'll feel equal. If they treat me equal, I'll feel like they're shitting on me. And I understood that. And I went up to this guy after the meeting and I said, Jesus, if what you're saying is true, I may be alcoholic. He said, how long have you been around here, kid? I said, seven months. He said, you're a quick study, aren't you? <laughs> he said, the trouble, Barney, is that people like you and me often miss the point here. Because the real curse of the alcoholic is not drinking. It just looks like it's drinking. We talk about drinking all the time. We talk about not drinking. We talk about sobriety. We talk about... Drinking escapades. We talk about what drinking does to people. We talk about people who get sick from drinking, who lose jobs from drinking, who lose families from drinking, people who finally die from drinking. So it looks like that's the problem. And the world of social drinkers out there and do-gooders and normies think that's the problem because it looks like that's the problem. He says the, the curse of the alcoholic, the curse for people like you and me is not drinking. We feel good when we drink. That's why we do it. The curse of the alcoholic, Barney, is sobriety. That's where the pain is. That's where the agony is. That's what we don't understand. That's a condition we can't sustain. We can stay sober for short periods of time, sometimes months. But sooner or later, if you're an alcoholic like me, an alcoholic of my type, as they say, sooner or later, no matter how long you're sober, you must begin to drink again the next time. Because it all gets to be too much. Because sobriety is painful. Because the agony of living is beyond people like me. Without something. It turns out, much to my surprise, that this book and these steps and this program are designed to help me take care of my sobriety problem. <laughs> AA says to me, look stupid, don't drink today. If you do not drink today, you don't have a drinking problem. You then have a sobriety problem. Which if you don't deal with it, you're going to have to drink again. Well, how do I take care of my sobriety problem? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Turns out we got these here steps. Oh, the crap, they read the meetings, yeah. And after the first half of the first step, we don't talk about alcohol anymore. Because we ain't drinking it, theoretically. We admit we're powerless over alcohol, and so we don't drink it today. We're powerless over it. It's killing us. Don't drink it. I have to. Oh, no, no, no. Just for today. Don't have the first drink. Just for today. One day. <laughs> One hour, if that may be. And then let's take a look at the second half of the first step, and let's go to work on that. Because that's your sobriety problem. Your life is unmanageable, Goofy. And not just because you drink. Your life's unmanageable all the time. That's probably why you drink. <laughs> the first step doesn't say, 
uh, admitted we were powerless over alcohol, and so our lives had become unmanageable. Don't say that. What it said, there's a dash in there. And either Bill Wilson was doodling in that little office in New Jersey, or he put it in there for a reason. It's a long dash. Admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Dash. That our lives had become unmanageable. Two different thoughts. Two entirely different thoughts. That's why the dash is there. And, and it was explained to me by people who seem to have been around here for a long time. That the problem for guys like me, and maybe like you, I don't know, is we don't drink successfully. Boom. Admitted we were powerless over alcohol. And we don't do sobriety successfully either. Our lives have become unmanageable. And it gets so unmanageable, we've got to go back over here, even though we don't do this successfully. Because it's the only therapy for me that's effective. But AA has provided me with some kind of a new way to go, some kind of a new therapy, if you will. Some kind of a new procedure. And the procedure in the beginning and even to this day involved action in Alcoholics Anonymous. Getting involved, being part of. And so I was involved and part of. Did I get well right away? No, 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 no. <laughs> I set out right away after I've been sober about a year to get rich and famous because that's what I wanted. I knew if I got enough stuff, I'd be happy. I always knew that. And now that I'm sober, I figure I got a shot at it. And so I set out to get a lot of stuff, and I went to work for CBS. And I went back east, and I was working in Philadelphia, and I was going up to New York, and I was, I can remember sitting in New York, in a studio in New York, taping some stuff with Cronkite one day, and we were, we were doing some taping, and, and he was talking to me about, his wife was ill, and he was going to go up to Martha's Vineyard on the boat and retire, and instead of having any sense of feeling about him or his wife or his age or anything else, all I could sit there and think was, yeah, you old fool, and the sooner the better. <laughs> because that's where my head was. Because that's how I felt. Because that in sobriety, all I wanted to do was get rich and famous. Because I still know that that's going to do it for me. If I get rich and I get enough money and I get successful and I get enough cars, and I, then I'll be all right. And so I set out to do that, and I worked hard at it. I, I, did, I worked so hard at it, I didn't have a lot of time for meetings, so I didn't go to very many. I worked so hard at it that I didn't really have time for AA. But I was in the process of trying to get rich and famous and successful, and I was sober, and what the hell. <clears throat> when I was uh, sober about three years, my wife began to make some real threats of divorce, and, and, and the ratings were not going up, and CBS was looking at me funny, and I was getting crazier by the day, and my children were drinking and using drugs. And I couldn't seem to get anybody to do it right. And I talked to a man with 18 years of sobriety, and I told him how awful it all was. I told him how AA didn't work for me, because I, I was sober. And, uh, and I, I, I tried to straighten out those kids, and they wouldn't straighten. And I tried to straighten out that wife, and she wouldn't straighten. Tried to straighten out that job, and that wouldn't straighten. I was doing all this work. I was making all this effort. Aye, 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 aye. <laughs> I believe today that my principal problem in sobriety is ego. 
I believe that my principal solution is surrender. I didn't know that then. I believe that now. But I was in the process of trying to make it all happen, trying to fix everybody and everything. And uh, somehow through the strength of my own will, I was going to make it all all right. And it wasn't all right. And this man said to me, how many meetings do you go to? And I said, well, I don't have a lot of time for meetings. I, I'm trying to be rich and famous here. <laughs> he said, how many newcomers do you work with? And I said, I don't do that much. Because all the newcomers I ever tried to work with got drunk. And, and so, I, I, besides, I haven't met any newcomers here on the East Coast. <laughs> he said, yes, I know they go to those meetings you don't attend. <laughs> he said, what are you doing about the third step? I said, I don't believe in God. He said, that isn't what I asked you. What are you doing about the third step? I said, I cannot do a third step because I don't believe in God. I did a third step. Well, I decided my higher power, this is so I could do a fourth and fifth step and get on with it. I decided that my higher power was going to be all of the alcoholics around the world linked together in some spiritual way. He says, how's that working for you today? <laughs> I said, it doesn't work at all. It's just, it's all bullshit. Everything is, isn't it? He said, well, I think you have to begin to go to those meetings, whether you don't think, uh, whether you think you got time or not, whether you think the meetings are being run right or not, whether they're up to your standards. I think you've got to put your ass in the chair and leave your head outside. <laughs> he said, I think that you must begin to work with newcomers. You must, because they may save your life. And he said, I think really that you have to begin to pray. And I said, well, I can't pray, Phil, because it makes me feel like a phony. And he said, well, that's okay. You are a phony. <laughs> I said, well, I, yeah, I suppose you're right, but I, what do I do? Say a phony prayer? He said, sure, why not? <laughs> to a phony God? He said, sure, yeah, sure. Absolutely. Take the action whether you believe in it or not. Take the action whether you believe in it or not. I said, okay. So I start going to meetings. Going to meetings, going to meetings. Grabbing newcomers by the throat and threatening them. <laughs> I say, you call me at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning? Some of them did. I don't know why. And some of them stayed sober. And I didn't know what to do with them when they were sober. <laughs> they're in your living room. They're in your kitchen. They're on the telephone. You can't get rid of them. What meeting are we going to tonight? <laughs> so what do you mean we? You're the newcomer, goddammit. <laughs> and I didn't know what to do with them. I didn't know what to say to them. I don't have any magic answers for them. I, I just, I don't know how to, you know, tell anybody anything. What am I, how can I be a sponsor? What, what do I do? And I, I, I did the only thing I knew how to do. I began to open the zipper and let him see what was inside. I didn't know what else to do. I told him the truth. I said, you're dealing with one of the sickest cookies in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not particularly fond of meetings. I don't like spiritual speakers. I don't believe in God. I say a phony prayer. And I don't like you. 
I'm talking to you because somebody told me I had to do this. And the sick people I got look at me and say, Oh, I really identify with you. Uh. And then finally, a, a, a man that I admire greatly, a fellow by the name of Clancy, said not too long ago something that helped me a lot in the regard of trying to be a sponsor. He said, because he sponsors a lot of people. And he's very good at it. He's very successful, has a reputation for being a really good sponsor. And he said not long ago, he said, you know, the real job of the sponsor is just to keep the baby amused until AA works. <laughs> and I never knew that. But it was a great relief. Because I don't have to know anything. I just have to keep amused. And I don't know how to do that, don't I, Chip? See, the man drove from San Francisco to be amused here. But I, you know, so that's what I do. I go to the meetings, and I work with the newcomers, and I say this stupid prayer, and I get fired. And I came back to California, and I was living in San Diego. I worked down there for a while, and then I quit that job. And I was sitting in, in La Jolla, and I, and I was running out of money. And I, uh, I spent all my money. I was five months without a job. And I was six years sober. And I was going to meetings, and I was working with Jesus. I had guys driving up to my house in Mercedes-Benz asking me how to work step three. And I got to say, I don't know, I never tried that one. <laughs> and my wife looked at me one day and she said, this is it. I'm getting out of here. You're crazy. I can't stand this anymore. We're, we're going to lose the house. The bank is going to take the house. You don't have a job. I mean, this is crazy. And I drove around and around and around that night, and I, and I drove over to a bar in La Jolla, and I sat in front of the bar, and I was six years sober. And I sat there, and I thought, if I just could get drunk, maybe I'd feel better. And I sat and thought about that for a long time. And I'd been to too many meetings, I guess. I just knew it wasn't going to help. And I, oh, shit, I drove down to the beach, and I'm sitting on the beach, and I'm just crying. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with me? Why is it that I have to be such a goof? Why is it that AA and I are just like oil and water. I've tried everything I know. I've sponsored people. I've gone to meetings. I've folded chairs. I mopped floors. I even read the stupid book. I've done all these things, and I'm such a goddamn loser, I can't stand it. i got no money. My wife is leaving me. I'm going to lose my house. My kids are crazy in hell. Nobody pays any attention to me, and I'm, I'm nuts. And i got no career. And my stuff was gone. <laughs> and I sat on that beach and it was midnight and it was March it was very cold out there and I know I was alone and I cried and I cried and I cried and I cried and finally I looked up because that's where he's supposed to be <laughs> and I just said the only thing that occurred to me I said you son of a bitch I give up now, you've got to be very careful what you say. <laughs> because if I had any notion that night or for some period of time after that, that I was beginning this really painful process called surrender, I probably wouldn't have done it. But that's what was going on. I thought surrender and working the third step was when, you know, after you've been sober for a while and one day you just wake up and everything's really going well in your life and you've got a lot of stuff and it's just great. And, and uh, you just go to the to the... To the French doors and open them and 
the sunlight is filtering through the garden and say, oh, God, okay, now I just surrender. And one like that with me. Surrender was a painful, awful, agonizing admission of complete and total and utter defeat, and I don't like that. And I had to do it six years sober, and that's even worse. But that's what happened to me. I had to admit that I was appealed zero. Because that's what I was. Not because I wanted to. That's what I was. Left to my own devices, I am nothing. Appealed zero is less than nothing. And I had the evidence. I had the evidence. I had failed in every department of my life. I failed as a husband, again. I failed as a father. I failed as an employee. I failed. I was never going to be the richest man in the cemetery. I finally knew that. I was, I'll tell you how sick I am. I used to sit after sobriety and in a cemetery over in the West L.A. where Al Jolson is buried. Got a huge mausoleum. Beautiful, huge thing. And I sit and look at that and think, boy, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> I said that to my sponsor one day, and he said, well, that's fine, except for one thing, buddy. He's dead. <laughs> yeah. That's very ill. So I decided my wife was going to go, okay. And I was going to just lose the house, okay. And I was going to get in my car, and I was going to take my six kids, and I was going to drive somewhere, I don't know where. And go get any kind of a stupid job because it didn't matter anymore. And I was just going to try and get this job and hang on to it. I don't want to be fired anymore. So I thought, I'll just show up every day and look alert. <laughs> and try not to prove anything to anybody. Just try to be low profile. Shut up. And just take whatever they give me and just try to hang on to the damn job. Because we've got to eat. And so that's where I was. I, I, I just thought that's what I'll do. And a guy called me up <clears throat> a couple days later from a station I used to work for in Los Angeles, and they said, we need a guy to come in here for about uh, 90 days and cover for somebody that's going to go have a baby. And uh, we need somebody just to do a little reporting, a little of this, a little of that. And uh, <clears throat> I thought of you because I know you're sitting on the beach down there. <laughs> I said, well, that's fine. And I went up there and I went to work for this guy. and I'd been there a couple of months, and the news director came in to me one day, and he said, hey, he says, you know, you're really doing a good job. I said, oh, well, and he don't know. All I do is show up and look alert. See, he doesn't know that. I'm not trying to impress anybody. I'm just going in, doing what they tell me to do, and shutting up. Works. It's amazing. Because it turns out they don't care what I think, hardly ever. They have not asked me to be chairman of the board of that corporation yet. I'm sitting there waiting for the call, but they, have, <laughs> they just want me to do what they tell me to do. Isn't that the damnedest thing? And I... So I go there, and I do that, and they said, now we're going to sign a contract here. We want to put you on a five-year contract. How much money you got to have? And I said, I don't care. And he said, what do you mean you don't care? I said, I just don't care. It doesn't make any difference. He said, well, who's your agent? I said, I don't have one anymore. He said, what happened to you? I said, I don't know. It just doesn't matter to me anymore. I just got to show up here every day. That's all. <laughs> he said, well, what do you want me to do? I said, just put a number on a piece of paper, and I'll sign it. How's that? And he put a much bigger number on a piece of paper than I would have asked it for. And I laughed and I signed it. And then he came back the next day and he said, I didn't give you enough money. And he gave me a raise. And 
And I just go in every day and I show up and I look at work and I do whatever they tell me to do. Show up, look alert. Yes, sir. Okay, here I am. Let's do it. Go out and do whatever I do. And uh, and they keep giving me money and they keep giving me raises and they keep, you know, out of embarrassment or something. I don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> I've been back there now since 1978. And, uh, and now I've been sober 18 and a half years. And, well... I think it's nice, but I think congratulating somebody for being sober for a long time is like congratulating a cancer patient for taking his chemotherapy. <laughs> oh, is that wonderful? He still wants to live. Is that nice? <laughs> but, but, you know, I really, I think we take birthday cakes for the newcomers, not for ourselves. There ain't no congratulations coming to us. All we're trying to do is survive. You know, but it's a newcomer, so they can see that the damn thing works. That's why we take cake. I hear people say, oh, I don't want to take a birthday cake, you know, thinking that they don't, that, that that's a reflection that they have ego, that they would take a birthday cake. That's not a reflection of their ego. The birthday cake is just, all that's is a reflection that AA works. It's got nothing to do with them. It's just some drunk getting up there and saying, AA works in my life, and it's done it for another year. Thank you very much. That's all. Anyway. Uh, my wife. Oh, Jesus. She's crazy. She's an alcoholic. And uh, I know what the hell to do with her. I tried all those years to make her happy. I tried to make her love me. I tried to just, you know, I, I'm not into anything except I just want adoration. That's all I really want. And I can't get that. And I'm just crazy. And, uh, and, and she just the original liberated woman. You know? She said, in one of my weakest moments... I said to her one day, I said, you know, I really need you. And she said, well, that's funny. I don't need you. I said, how can you say that to me? And she said, because I don't need you. That's why. I was getting along fine before I met you. I was sober. I had a good life. And I'll do fine if you leave tomorrow. You understand that? The reason I'm here is because I choose to be. Oh. And she gave me this philosophy, and I really believe it today. Her philosophy is, if you have two people who are strong, of and in themselves, all alone, without leaning on one another, if they're just okay alone, and then they choose to be together and bring something to that relationship, you got something. But if you got two morons leaning on one another, all they do is... Because <laughs> somebody keeps moving. You know, oh, <laughs> she taught me that. But I didn't know how to get along with her, and I didn't know how to make her happy, and I didn't know what the hell to do with her, and she was going to divorce me anyway. And so I really, the only thing I do, I do the same thing at home that I do at work. I just show up and look alert. <laughs> because I, honest to God, do not know how to get along with this woman. I don't know how to make her, I don't know how to deal with her at all. So I just, you know, come around, hi, how you doing? You know. But we have, you know, we have had from time to time a stormy relationship for 16 years now we're married. And, but those eight kids have been raised and they're doing fine. And she's more responsible for that than I because she's been with them most of the time. And she has taken care of those children. And, and, and it's amazing how well they've done. The oldest boy is sober almost 10 years in AA. Uh, <coughs> he married a girl in AA and they had a couple of alcoholic babies. <laughs> Laughter 
I have a son who's, who, who sells for Turner Broadcasting now, and well, nobody's perfect, but he, <laughs> he really is doing extremely well. He's married, and they have a baby, another one on the way, and, and uh, uh, I have daughters who work in television production in Hollywood, and my oldest daughter now is expecting a baby in February, and, uh, and she's doing really well in her career. She's a producer now of commercials, and, uh, and just, I can't believe how well she's doing. She produces, you know, mammoth. $800,000 commercials that are her responsibility. And she's, and she's just tremendous, and I really like her. Uh, she gets hired uh, a lot by directors and people that are really top people. I'm just so proud of her. And I have, you know, my other daughter is a production coordinator, and she does well. And, and uh, I have a son who's a doctor at UCLA Medical Center. Here's a kid who walked into walls, you know. <laughs> he would break everything he got in his hands on. He's a surgeon today. You know? <laughs> He was the surgical intern of the year at UCLA last year. I was absolutely amazed. And, uh, and he's married and they have a baby and, you know, all these grandchildren. It's really fun. So we got a, we got a nice home in La Jolla and we have a couple of cars and we have clothes and we have a lot of stuff. <laughs> the difference today is the stuff is a lot less important to me than it used to be. The difference today is that I don't have to feel uncomfortable because somebody else has got more stuff than me or more expensive stuff than me. I don't have to worry about that anymore. It's not my problem. How much money I make is none of my business. Absolutely true. And uh, that's the way it is with me. I hand my wife all my money. I don't care. And she gives me cash on Sunday, and I put it in my pocket, and that's what I live on. And that's how I live. I don't care about all that stuff. It's just it because why? Because it's not a good idea, no. Because I can't survive that way. Because it makes me crazy to get into that. Because I need to just do the things that are in front of me right now. And the next indicated thing for me was, you know, go to Sacramento. Talk to a group of people at their ninth anniversary. A bunch of people, most of whom you don't even know about something you don't even do anymore. And, and for some reason or other, that's therapy. <laughs> So I know a lot of you are just dying to get out of here and get to that dance, so I'm going to shut up. But uh, I want to thank you for inviting me to come here and to participate, particularly in your anniversary. I want to thank you for being so patient and sitting and, and sharing my sobriety, because it is, it is through this process I have finally, finally understood it's through this process that I'm able to get in touch with some sense of, of God in my life. See, I have come to believe that a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity. I don't think he's done it yet, but I think he can. <laughs> I'll say this now, shut up. If you're new, I've got to tell you this. You can have any higher power in AA that you want to, as long as you're reasonably sure it isn't you. <laughs> think about that.
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.